Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. On this week's episode of The Drip, our last of 2020, we discuss some of the headlines from the week of December 13th while looking back on select top events, including Justin Trudeau being the Teflon Don, Doug Ford's return to his old self, the light that COVID shined on racial and economic inequities. A year in review. Is the focus on anti-Black racism a movement or just for a moment? A red table talk conversation that had me go red. And Canada supporting developing countries to get access to the COVID vaccine. To kick off our politics segment, with 2020 coming to a close, we thought we'd do a quick snapshot of where Justin Trudeau and his Liberal Party are in light of their handling of the pandemic and their first full year in office since the 2019 election. Turns out JT is in fact the Teflon Don because his party is the only federal party that's in a much better position than it was a year ago. According to CBC's poll tracker, the Liberals are up 4.2% since December 2019. The Conservatives, NDP, and Bloc Québécois have hardly moved, while the Greens, unfortunately, are actually down nearly 3%. I mean, Anime, what's going on, fam? Like, looks like you lost that roaring thunder you had during the fight for your seat. I mean, she, she lost her. She lost the election, fam. Like, <laughs> I, I, think, I think losing the election probably put a damper on all of the, of the, the momentum that she had going for her. Mm. What a difference a year makes. Liberals now have more support in every part of Canada than they did before the pandemic. How much did they gain? In BC, they gained 7%. They're now at 33%. In Alberta, they gained 9%, but they're still 30% behind the CPC. In Ontario, Manitoba, and Saskatchewan, they gained 3%. And in Quebec, they gained 5%. In Atlantic Canada, it's like 4%. For context, a year ago, the Liberals only had a narrow 0.5% lead over the Conservatives and were solidly in minority territory. But today's numbers would deliver around 167 seats to the Liberals, with about 111 seats going to the Conservatives, 32 to the Bloc, 27 to the NDP, and 1 to the Greens. That doesn't differ much from the current standings in the House, but it does put the Liberals pretty close to that 170-seat mark, needed for a majority government. So, Patience, what have you thought of the PM's performance this year? Tell me, a, tell me a high point and tell me a low point for you, and I'll do the same. I mean, I'm a pretty big fan of, of Justin Trudeau. I have to be honest about that. So I guess the, the high point for me is actually his external performance. So the way that he is when he's doing international relations and, and kind of building relationships with... Uh, countries or maybe even rebuilding relationships right after Obama left office and he had to build relationships with uh, Trump. Like, I think that's, that's kind of where he, he shines. 
mm-hmm. and, and makes Canada look really good. So I think a high point for me, for Justin, is his positioning on the international stage. Yeah. Low point, I mean, I hope that I'm not stealing your answer, is definitely all this we stuff, this mm-hmm. we scandal like, come on. Like, I mean, you and I have both worked either in politics or adjacent to politics. So we're like, we know kind of how to avoid some of these landmines. And, mm. you know, the, the liberals are often um, accused of being sloppy. Like, we know that you, you know, that some of this stuff doesn't look good, you know, clean up your books, make sure there's enough separation between members of your family when you're in office so <laughs> that was like a definite low point it just it, it looked it looked bad first of all like mm. absolutely like conflict of interest and then it also just looked like, like sloppy like like so it's it's so bad and you don't even care that it's bad mm. um so yeah what about you yeah yeah no i you, you did take my point but it's okay i think we have um you know perspectives worth sharing regardless so my high point was um the government role. I actually have two high points, but the reason I'll, I'll explain myself. So I have got two high points. One is the government rolling out pandemic supports in their communication with Canadians. It was unparalleled in history yep. and um, through traditional means, but also through like social media in particular, right? I'm a big social media person. I was like, yo, the government is really doing well on this file. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seemed like they weren't going to stop at anything to make sure that Canadians were, were safe in this time, right? So that was a real high point. The second high point and what I would have wanted to be a high point for me was kind of Justin Trudeau's response to, to George Floyd's murder and the cries of, of, of Black Canadians, right? Oh. Um, the, the reason why it's not my high point is because, yes, he made a major announcement with a lot of money, but the money hasn't actually flowed yet. Literally, as we speak, like literally on Monday is when one of the first periods closed for Black organizations to apply for funding. So like things are in motion, but the money isn't actually flowing yet. So I can't be happy for something I don't actually have. Mm-hmm. My low point is, again, the We Charity bullshit, right? But I want to be absolutely clear. The We Charity incident was a distraction <laughs> meant to bruise the government and allow the conservatives in particular to score political points. And why do I say this? Because all political parties have issues with ethics, some more than others. And the conservatives are actually the worst. They literally had over 70 violations when they were less in power. I talked about this on episode 20. And even look at them now, claiming residential schools were just meant to, quote, provide education to individuals. Who said that? Sorry. (laughs) You missed that? What? Aaron O'Toole this week, he was talking to a, a group of camp, a Ryerson conservatives, campus conservatives. Oh, my God. And uh, he was he, – that's what he said. He said, you know uh, – what? okay, so I have to be clear here. His context was the residential school system started out as something great. It was meant to, as I said, provide education to indigenous people. That's not true, but that's what he said. And – it ended up being something terrible. We need to learn from that and we need to be better for it. That was his overall messaging. Yeah, how old is Aaron O'Toole? He is in his 40s or if not early 50s. So was he there when when <laughs> when they were designing the, like, you know, when, when they kind of set out their initial intentions? Like, yeah. how can he say that so so boldly? But this is the joke, Patience, because, and I think we talked about this last week, even Stephen Harper, which was his prime minister back when, you know, the conservatives were last in power, 
Stephen Harper apologized for this. And what did he say? It was clearly about the, the assimilation and destruction of indigenous culture. Of course. So even his party knows that. And so what people have been saying, like uh, AFN chief uh, Perry Bellagarde, is it was clearly just meant to, you know, rile up political points with that young base. Wow. When Aaron O'Toole knows better. Man. So going back to what I've been saying, um, you know, there's also the fact that uh, people in his caucus, in Aaron O'Toole's caucus, are racist and are, uh, you know, big anti-vaxxers. There's also the fact that Andrew Scheer used taxpayer dollars to hire his wife's sister, who then hired his wife, who then worked for him. So, you know, that like, don't tell me about ethics from these guys, man. And some of you may think that I'm being hard on the cons, and I get it, but it's it's because they claim to be good people when they're not. It's like it's like America; they claim American exceptionalism, which is actually bullshit. Because on the one hand, well, I'm going into the weeds now, so I just don't like people who claim to be something that they're not. So, Curtis, tell me, what is your political forecast for the year ahead? Um, at the federal level, there will be an election. Justin will win. He'll likely get a majority. Hmm. Outside of that, I really can't. Like, why am I going to sit here and try to predict the future when we've seen how much a year can change in the blink of an eye? Mm-hmm. Jumping to Doug Ford. I've been going really easy on him throughout the pandemic, giving him the chance to continue his good behavior that he first started showing at the start of the pandemic. But that's coming to an end. Because I don't know if you've been paying attention, but because of his inaction back in the summer and because he refused to spend a $12 billion contingency fund that was mostly financed by the federal government, cases have been shooting through the blood clot roof. Peter Bethlen Calvi, who is Ontario's Treasury Board President for the record, says, but we did spend the money. And, and that's true. They've since spent 80% of the money on COVID testing, contact tracing and extra hospital beds and other things. But if they had spent it sooner, when many experts were urging them to, we'd be in a much better position right now. On top of that, look at how he's looting small business owners in favor of large corporations. It's madness. And another thing, dude is coming for the environment yet again. Let's remember part of the reason why he was elected. He was able to gain significant financial support from developers, which was then used to slander Kathleen Wynne while also reinforcing some of her shortcomings, through social media pages like Ontario Proud. And since he's won, he's been trying to undo protections around the green belt. The first time he tried, he pushed back and won. Now it looks like he's trying to take advantage of his high poll numbers or population fatigue from COVID to make changes again. Changes that would lead to people and their property being at risk of increased flooding. Yeah, I've been looking forward to us discussing this because this especially affects folks that live in our region of Durham. At the beginning of the month, the Ford government passed a law tucked in with COVID legislation, allowing it to ignore environmental considerations for development projects. The Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, Steve Clark, can literally bypass any conservation authority, which typically has the power to put conditions on or outright block developments that would cause flooding and erosion in their region. And for the record, there are 36 conservation authorities across the province. Now, one of Doug Ford's developer buddies can just go to the minister, say, that one! And he'll say, okay, and deliver a municipal zoning order, or MZO, to make it so. The result? 
Developers sell more property and they're happy, while municipalities and everyday homeowners are left paying the tab for environmental negligence. And that's why you got to keep money out of politics, man, so it doesn't influence government decision-making away from the interest of everyday people. And here's what else this all tells us. All of this underscores that this, this new Doug Ford isn't new at all. His agenda hasn't changed. For the record, the government says they're committed to protecting the green belt, which is why they've created a $30 million program that'll, quote, protect, enhance, and restore wetlands across Ontario in priority watersheds, end quote. But that's bullshit, because the chair of the Greenbelt Council, David Crombie, a respected progressive conservative and former mayor of Toronto, by the way, and half of the board resigned in protest. Mayors of cities like Aurora hate it too, because they're an example of how Steve Clark commissioned a development that the city didn't want. The Ontario Federation of Agriculture and its 38,000 members are concerned about the policy. So, <laughs> what are your thoughts about all this, Patience? I think that the, you're bringing up a really good point. And I mean, the fact that the uh, half of the board resigned in protest to the, the, these new programs really show that people are taking this environmental stuff really, really seriously. Spoke about, I, I spoke about last week how um, we're, we're getting hailstorms worse than we did before. We're getting flooding in areas of uh, the, the greater Toronto area or the, rather the greater Golden Horseshoe area that we've never gotten before because we're developing without taking precautions around these environmental assessments. If the environmental assessment tells you that this is a watershed area and we need it so that we don't flood the city or we don't flood certain certain parts of suburbs, then we need to actually just listen to that. It isn't good enough to just say, you know what, we, we need a condo here. We need a development here. Uh, and, and especially if, you know, like places like places like Aurora, like they know where they can build and where where their watershed is. Mm-hmm. We have a, a green belt for, for that exact reason. So I think 100 percent we need to defer to folks who have been thinking about this, following this for for decades. I think that also if there's any opportunity for us to defer to indigenous knowledge keepers on this stuff, mm-hmm. we should really be doing that because again, like they are the original inhabitants of this land and, and they knew of Turtle Island before it became British North America and before it became Canada. But but yeah, like doing all of this just to to please developers is short-sighted and uh puts a lot of people at risk. Jump into the Canadian economy. The city has finally voted 24 to 1 in favor of a vacancy tax. The vacant home tax means thousands of homes will return to the market in the six, which should help in the fight to lower rent and mortgage costs. The plan will be implemented around 2022. There are still questions about how high the tax will be, though. 1%? 5%? Who knows? John Tory, for his part, says he hopes one day the tax doesn't raise, quote, one cent, end quote, because it does exactly what it's meant to do, which is keep homes from staying vacant and keep costs low. And we've talked about this on episode 31, but we we know the tax works, right? According to Mayor Kennedy of Vancouver, they were able to reduce vacant homes in their region by 15% between 2018 and 2019 with just a 1% tax. Thomas Davidoff, an associate professor at the Sauter School of Business at UBC, agrees that the tax did exactly what it was meant to do. So the same will apply here. 
This year shined a huge light on the disparities that many in the Black community and the wider immigrant community face in Toronto. It isn't pretty. And it was bad even before the pandemic. For example, data collected by the city shows that Black people in Toronto are more than twice as likely to live in low-income households compared to residents who are not visible minorities. Meanwhile, 44% of Black children live in poverty compared to 15% of non-racialized kids. Other data, like from U of T's Professor David Hotansky, shows that even though Black people make up 9% of the GTA's population, we account for 13% of residents living in low-income neighborhoods, where the average individual income is $32,000 before taxes. Conversely, we make up just 3% of residents living in affluent areas, where individuals make over $102,000 a year before tax. A United Way report also points to the fact that between 1980 and 2015, all immigrants, regardless of if they were newly landed or had been here for 20 years or more, were earning near or even less than they were 35 years ago. Meanwhile, quote, Canadian-born incomes shot up by 70% in the same period. The numbers were similar for Peel and York. We were struggling. Then we lost what jobs we did have due to COVID. As Nathan Shan, executive director of the Alliance on Urban Race Relations, points out, it's common to see extended families living together for support or because it's hard to find affordable housing. And most essential workers are lower income, precariously employed, and are less prone to taking sick days if they're even given. So what does that mean for us? Data released by Toronto Public Health reveals that Black people made up the biggest percentage of total cases of COVID, 21%, and Latin Americans had the highest infection rates, being 481 cases per 100,000 people. I talked about this on episode 15 back in August. Thankfully, since that point, there have been moves to fix those disparities from all levels of government, especially the feds and the city. But we need to keep vulnerable people in mind in everything we do in 2021 and beyond and strive to make the economy work for the middle class next year. Your thoughts, Patience? You know, I I appreciate that you said that the feds and the city have made moves to fix the disparities, but we're not even close to fixing the disparities. Agreed. Still, when we when we check on the, you know, the infection rates in certain areas in the city of Toronto, we're seeing triple the rates in racialized immigrant communities than we are in other places. And because I sit on a health board or, or the board of a, of a community health center, we talk a lot about health equity. And I actually don't think that uh, we're doing a good enough job of really paying attention to health equity in this moment. Mm-hmm. Of course, I think this year Canadians have started to collect race-based health data and that will help us. But man, there's, there's, there, there's, there's so much. We have so far to go. The casualties of this pandemic are going to continue to be people who cannot afford to stay home for 10 or 14 days. Mm -hmm. And that is not changing. CERB has helped with that a little bit, but that isn't, isn't, hasn't changed. There's so much more that needs to be done. So much more research that needs to be funded to provide some additional context for this. But I just know I've seen my share of devastation as a result of COVID and, uh, I really, really want to impress upon all three levels of government to do more to support 
these communities. I hear that. So moving on to Blackity Black Black News, I really wanted to take some time to really talk about what has happened over the last seven months. As political commentators, who who I, I hope that you trust to be able to provide you with the news as well as our takes on the news, I, I wanted to spend some time analyzing whether what we've seen since the, the death of George Floyd, actually, I'm not going to call it death. I heard someone call it the death of George Floyd the other day, and I was actually deeply offended. Mm. It wasn't, he didn't just die. It was a murder. It was a murder. So since the public murder or the public lynching of George Floyd, I wanted to see whether... Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The patterns were indicative of a moment, meaning, you know, short-term, temporal, uh, the, the flavor of the week, or... If what we have been seeing over the last couple of months or last seven months has been more indicative of a movement. Mm-hmm. So, Curtis, the way that I, I would like this to work is that I, I go through the moment section and then we have a conversation about that. Okay. And then I go through the movements and then we talk a little bit about that. So things that I think are more indicative of the last seven months as a moment are Republicans in Congress not knowing who Breonna Taylor is. Mm-hmm. We we shared a story a couple weeks ago that uh, the the newest congresswoman wore a mask saying Breonna Taylor, and the Republicans thought that that's what her name was. They had no idea that Breonna Taylor was brutally murdered in her apartment by state police. Second, little accountability around wellness checks, uh, even in the face of the the untimely death of Regis Korchinski Paquette. Earlier this year, we reported that Black Canadian Minister of Justice, Casey Madu, thought that defunding the police was, quote unquote, ridiculous. The execution of Brandon Bernard that we spoke about on last week's episode and the shooting of Walter Wallace Jr. uh, in front of his mom by a police officer in Philadelphia. So the general argument I want to make behind these, these events being indicative of a moment is that all of these events have happened between the the murder of George Floyd and today. And they seem to be fleeting 
moments. They're headlines that come up and we forget and they come up and they, and they go away, but they're not necessarily indicative of progress. Yeah. What are your thoughts? Yeah. I know. I, I agree a hundred percent. I, I, if I, if I, if I under, if I already have tuned in to where I think you're going with this, mm-hmm. we, you know, bad things happen every single day, but we have to look at the bigger picture. And if you look at the bigger picture, there actually are very good structural things that are happening that happen as a result of George Floyd's murder, but also things that were just sped up yeah. because of that moment. Mm-hmm. And so the moment that we're in today, it will not be the moment that we're in in the future. And that's that we can be happy about that. But I want to push you a little bit, but all of those, those, those five stories that I just kind of shared, do they make you feel as if we're moving in, 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 in the right direction? No, of course not. Okay. Of course not. And, and, and that's why it goes back to what I just said, right? It's, we have to be careful not to look at what is happening day to day because mm. these things will happen. Mm. We have to be discerning enough to look at the bigger picture and, and look at key things because it's not, it's everything. And it, when it, when it, no matter what we're talking about in life, it's not about what happens every single second, every single day. It's about the key things that change the direction mm-hmm. of, right? In this case, of, of policy. Mm-hmm. Right or, or the experience of Black people on Turtle Island, mm-hmm. we have to look at those because that is what gives us perspective on the future. Mm-hmm. So you're, I mean, you're you're right, right? My my next part is is let's let's talk about things that have been indicative of a movement. And all the stories that I mentioned in the moment we we shared on the podcast, all the stories that I'll mention in the movement were also things that we talked about on the podcast. So NASDAQ requiring diversity reporting, I think Mm -hmm. is indicative of a movement, not because they're going to be forcing corporations to uh, have diversity, but because uh, in, in the moment that we're in right now, in the times that we're in right now, there is an element of public shame that is quite effective. Mm-hmm. Ke- the Quebec government took really speedy action after the, the death of Joyce Echequan. And I, I know that Joyce Echequan is not a black uh, woman, but uh, still kind of representative of the systemic violence that, that people uh, of color generally experience at the hands of, of the system. Mm-hmm. Um. We've started collecting race-based data or race-based health data in Canada, which I, we just mentioned when we we're talking about uh, what's been happening in the city of Toronto in particular. I think that this is a major, major thing. Uh, I was running a, a training a couple of days ago for my um, executive team where I work. And um, as I was researching for that presentation, I I mean, I think I think most people know that Black women in North America are more likely to die of complications from pregnancy. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that people know that through a study that was done in 2016, medical students and medical residents um, were found to believe that Black people feel less pain than other people. So, so our listeners should know that because we did tell them about that earlier this year. Okay. I'd be surprised if, yeah, I'd be surprised if a majority of people were aware of that. Yeah, it's it's a it's a tough it's it's a tough thing to 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 talk about. I mean, as as a black person, I think it's it's tough to to really kind of talk about. But you know, I, I think that it's rare that we 
consider that in line with COVID, in line with like, like think about the consequences of that, you know? So I think anyway, going back to my, my point, my, my main point is that finally we're collecting race-based health data in Canada, which is important because to this day, I'm sure if you have five doctors, you know, a dentist, uh, uh, family doctor, you know, all these different doctors, one of them probably thinks that you feel less pain than the white patient who's scheduled right after you. That's what it is. The real world effects of it, right? Michael Farrell gets sentenced to jail time. Sentenced to jail time. Has not yet served it. And, of course, the election, Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. What do you think about these things as being indicative of a movement, Curtis? So, like, especially when we're talking about, you know, a Canadian perspective, the collection of race-based data, that is monumental. Yep. Because if and the way to the way to 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 analyze this is by looking at where the U.S. was at one point and where they are now for right. black people mm-hmm. for for black people um, who have made it essentially mm-hmm. right many of the black folks who have made it whether they're in, in Atlanta or any other of uh, major cities they made it because of regulations that were put in place that circulated around affirmative action mm-hmm. right. We, we, we don't, we effectively do not have an affirmative action regime here in Canada. No, we do not. Uh, things like collecting race-based data, though, that is what leads to the affirmative action regime. And so that's why the, the, the need to collect race-based data is so important. And that's why it's so monumental, right? It speaks to where we are going. You, I love the, the phrase that you said. It stuck with me since I heard it from you. We're on a moving train. And I think mm-hmm. about it all the time. We are true. We truly are. Mm-hmm. Now there, I, I, I wanted to um, talk about some things that are kind of in between for me, Curtis. Maybe you can help me to kind of discern where these two stories belong. The first mm-hmm. story is, you know, when the feds announced that they were giving $221 million in loans, not grants, but loans mm-hmm. to black entrepreneurs I wasn't sure if that was indicative of a of a moment or of a movement. I think had had they been grants, I would have been confident to to call that a, a, a real movement. Um, racialized people make fifty one cents on the dollar for for white men, you know, so kind of a form of kind of paying it back. Um, but the fact that they're loans, I don't know. What do you think? So I, I absolutely do believe that it is a, a movement as opposed to a moment. Okay. Um, and the reason why is because we have to remember that we asked what we, what part of what we were asking for from the federal government was equal treatment to everybody else in terms of our business and entrepreneurial pursuits. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Well, the problem that we were experiencing is that we were not being treated with respect. We were not being given loans. Mm-hmm. We were not being seen as customers. Mm-hmm. And so what this does now is it it actually gives us money that we can use to grow our businesses. And if we grow our businesses, that's what the movement is. That's That's where we are building economic capacity for future generations and ensuring that future Black Canadians are not living in poverty. Mm-hmm. At the same time... I just read an article this week. The article this week was from a, you know, the woman talked, this black entrepreneur talked about the fact that, look, the, the money from the government is great. That 221 million is great. But if supply chains 
mm. aren't changed so that white companies aren't f- like essentially forced to buy from black companies, you know, the growth of the black Canadian will not speed up. Right. 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 And so we have to go further as the U.S. has where there are mandates to ensure that black companies are part of supply chains. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's good. Yeah, I, I, you're absolutely right. Um, and that's like we have to have like some some more diversification, perhaps. But but definitely we need to to be part of, of major supply chains. And so my second story that I was kind of wondering where where it should fit is is you know this year there were a lot of donations given to historically black colleges and universities in the united states in many ways the size of these endowments to universities like howard university and spelman and and morehouse university are are likely going to last longer than than some of the the policies that that we we talk about on a consistent basis. Mm-hmm. I believe historically black colleges and universities, even though we don't have any in Canada, are where a, a lot of foundational knowledge about blackness is kind of housed and, and where a lot of the, the, the kind of breakthroughs in science and technology uh, that focus on black people, that, that's where it, it typically happens. So I think these institutions need greater funding right. and, and I was happy to see um, I was happy to see all of the money Mackenzie Scott. Oh thank you. I'm just Googling. I was, like, I was happy to see all of the money come from Mackenzie Scott this year to those universities. But like is this is this her being part of a moment or is this her really pushing a movement, pushing these universities? to center stage, to, to be better resourced, to be able to compete with the Ivy league. Like what, what is that? I don't, I don't think we'll, the only way that we can know patients mm-hmm. because of who she is, mm-hmm. is by looking at her track record of activity. Right. So we we're just hearing about her for her first rounds. Cause yeah. it's been, she's done multiple donations over multiple months. Right. Um, we're hearing about her first rounds of donations. So if she if she continues along this track or she somehow, you know, engages, not that she has to, because quite frankly, she's a billionaire. She can go live on an island and never be heard from again. Yeah. But um, and not that I'm supporting billionaires. But anyway, um, you know, she if, if she can if she if she chooses to use her resources to continue to support underrepresented groups, then we know that she means it. Mm-hmm. If 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 or we know that it's it's a movement for her. If not, then we know that it was just a moment. That said, I mean I think we we have to decouple people who do stuff that are good for a moment. What am I trying to say? Just because somebody does something good for a moment doesn't mean it won't be a movement or it won't have long-term effects as a movement would. Mm-hmm. I'm a lover of, of trash TV. I was watching Red Table Talk. I, I was watching it this week because there was an interesting dialogue happening uh, on Twitter about the episode. Mm-hmm. This past week on Jada Pinkett Smith's Facebook show, Red Table Talk, the women, if, if anyone, if, if people don't understand what Red Table Talk is, I can provide a little bit of a, a summary. It's three generations of black women. So Willow Smith, her mother, Jada Pinkett Smith, and her mother, 
uh, Gammy. I don't know what Gammy's real name is, but uh, her last name is Norris Banfield. So the three women, three generations of Black women get around a table and talk to, to guests. This week, the woman interviewed Olivia Jade. Olivia Jade is a young woman whose rich and famous parents were caught for paying half a million dollars in bribes to get Olivia into the University of Southern California. Mm. I, I'm sure lots of you will remember this kind of scandal when it was kind of bubbling up. Uh, Olivia Jade is, is the daughter of what we all know as Aunt Becky from Full House. That woman, Aunt Becky, I can't remember what her real name is, is now spending 60 days in jail, uh, as well as her husband, and they will both be fined for their role in the scandal, right? So you spend 60 days in jail, it's two months, and you, you pay off a little bit more so that you can get out, and that, that's what you pay for having done, participated in this, in this scandal. Mm-hmm. Now, the tea is that Gammy, Jada's mom, was not interested in having this conversation. She was not interested in having a conversation with a young, rich, white woman who was an an online influencer and creating space for her to apologize or learn and and, and try to do better. I really want to talk about this because I think Gammy is right. 100%. So I'm not going to interrupt you for the rest of what you're going to say, but um, I remember when I saw that the, you know the promotion for that episode right because i haven't watched it but i saw the promotion and i thought to myself yo i mean like i thought red table talk was supposed to be about real talk for women yeah for real and now you're you're literally just a pr you're a pr stunt exactly you are showing yourself to be a pr stunt because all you're doing is giving an out for this rich white woman who knows exactly what she was doing exactly to say oh i'm so sorry and i I'm, i'll do better and she probably won't exactly so I think at, at times, like, we really have to hold white people, particularly rich white people, accountable and not spoon feed them all of this, this history. And, 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 and this is particularly infuriating to me as, you know, I think people are so quick to forget that black women and black men who want their children to go to better public schools, Curtis. Mm-hmm. Public Not even private. elementary schools, because we know how redlining works in the United States, right? We know you, you don't let black people live in certain areas so that they don't get access to certain schools and schools mm-hmm. in white areas are better resource. We've talked about this on the podcast before. So there are, are two women that I really want to highlight in light of what happened with Olivia Jade being on that show. Olivia Jade, I, honestly, I've said her name too many times this episode. Gammy is absolutely right. She should not have been given that platform. Who should have been invited to the Red Table Talk is Tanya McDowell, who spent 12 years in jail for sending her six-year-old son to Norwalk, Connecticut's Brookside Elementary School while she lived in Bridgeport, even though she was homeless. She was convicted of first degree larceny for stealing an education. Yeah. (laughs) And you compare that. Okay, go on. Another woman who was not invited to the Red Table Talk who should have been invited was Kelly Williams Bowler. She was convicted of using the wrong residence to get her daughters into a better school district in Ohio. Because she didn't want them to go to a school in um, Akron, Ohio. She was sentenced to three years in order to pay $30,000 to the school board. Yeah, but Tanya and Kelly ain't worth it, man. They ain't going to bring the ratings. Wow. Wow. 
it's it's really it's it's utterly disgusting and i think gammy's timing and her insistence that this was the wrong thing to do is you know to 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 tag to to tag on to my previous story is really indicative of the moment and the movement that we're that we're on that it's no longer okay to just get white women on your show and have them talk for pr purposes like you just said it's not okay So moving on to news from the world, Canadian COVID support for developing countries. So most of you, most if not all of you, will be happy to hear that last week, Canada announced it would be spending $485 million to support developing countries through COVID-19. $230 million will be spent on COVID antibodies once they're clinically approved to help treat sick patients. And the other $255 million will go to Access to COVID Tools, or ACT which is a coalition of international organizations and countries responsible for the development of safe and affordable COVID-19 vaccines, therapeutics, and diagnostics. To date, Canada has invested $865 million in ACT to support developing countries. And that's the end of season one. Woo! What a year. Mama, we made it. <laughs> Listen, fam, we've got greatness in store for you. We want to make sure we're helping you break the cycle of poverty and develop wealth for you and the generations that come after you. So in the new year, we'll have a resident financial advisor from a highly reputable black firm on the pod from time to time to help guide you on your journey. We're also looking to have more special guests join us in the new year, just as we started doing toward the end of this one. For example, we're putting together a Black political leader series where we'll reach out to current Black politicians around Ontario to get to know them. Stay tuned for more details. Finally, we've launched a Patreon account. We're thankful to the hundreds of you who downloaded our episodes nearly 2,000 times this year, and we hope you'll continue to show us some support on our newest platform. Besides, we'll give merch. <laughs> We'll be back January 9th. Until then, have a great holiday season and stay safe. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.